LA Metro Magazine podcast is here to bring you the entertaining, informative, and inspiring stories of the people who live, work, and play in the greater Lucent Auburn main area. I'm your host, Colby Michaud. For my final interview of this inaugural season, we get to hear from Tom Platts. A longtime resident of Auburn, Tom has his hands in a number of organizations, understands the importance of attracting young professionals to the Twin Cities, and notably is someone who not only believes in the power of community, but puts that philosophy into practice every day. Our conversation takes us on a journey from the founding of his architecture firm, to his involvement in local theater and art, to uncovering the title of one of his most treasured books. This is LA Metro Magazine Podcast, Episode 17. Hi, Tom. How are you doing, Colby? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for being on LA Metro Magazine Podcast. Not at all. My pleasure. It's an honor. Um, let's jump right in. Okay. Could you take us back in time and give us uh, sort of a condensed history of where you grew up and what led you to uh, where you are today? Sure. Um, I was born at, uh, well, at the time it was called Central Maine General Hospital. CMMC. Grew up in Auburn, uh, went through the Auburn school system, graduated from Edward Little High School, um, then went down to Boston, went to college uh, for four years, took about three years off between college and grad school, worked in an architectural firm, um, and then I continued on with my studies, got a master's in architecture, and came back to the Lewis and Auburn area to meet up with my brother who had just gotten his engineering degree. And we started Platts Associates as an architectural and engineering firm. Um, and then, oh, when did when did Platts Associates start? So Platts Associates uh, incorporated in 1980. So we're in our 40th year now. Okay. Yes. And it was just the two of you. Uh, it started out just the two of us, uh, and then we slowly, you know, slowly grew. I mean, uh, we're not a huge firm right now. We've got. Um, about 10 employees and it, it's just about the right size that's, that's you know we could we've had a few more at times and a few less but generally that's about the size firm we are mm-hmm. what brought you back to Lewis and Auburn well I thought a lot about it I, I, I as I told you I spent actually three and a half years working for an architectural firm down in Cambridge which was great I enjoyed it I mean we got a chance to do large-scale projects we did the New England Aquarium we did the Baltimore Aquarium uh, we were the architects for the San Antonio Museum of Art some really really interesting projects to work on but by the same token um, I, I really my brother and I had always talked about starting our own firm and as a young architect, starting a firm in Boston is is ludicrous. I mean, there are so many architects graduating from school down mm-hmm. there, and so many huge firms, middle-sized firms, small firms. Uh, you would just spend every day trying to get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like I, I know Maine, uh, familiar with people. I thought it would be a little easier to ease into it get some interesting jobs and build our own practice um, and also I had no as much as I, I do like the cities um, they're vibrant they're they're fun to be in um, I think it's a hard place to live and raise a family um, so Maine had a lot of attraction in that way and coming back to Auburn was uh, really uh, it was it was familiar I, I think it was easier to start here yeah yeah you had the support of the friends, family, and the community that um, you already were familiar with? Yeah, I had certainly support from uh, from friends and, and family in the community. Uh, my father had died that same year that I moved back. So, uh, and I think my mother moved about a year later. Um, so I didn't have much, just my brother up here at that point. But still, a very familiar community and lots of people I knew. Do you remember when you first got interested in architecture? That's tough to say. Um... It's right after, well, first of all, I'll go back a little bit. I mean, we've all, um, I was, I've always been interested in kind of building things, creating things. Um, you know, the kid with, whether it's the Legos or the Lincoln Logs or the, um, so I think the idea of how things go together and how to um, do it in a creative way has always been kind of part of my life. 
Um, and then my brother and I did talk when we were, as we graduated from college, he was going on to engineering school, and we talked about kind of, you know, meeting up in four years. Um, not that we didn't see each other in the interim, but meeting up to start a business. And in college, I was, uh, I majored in visual communications, and a number of the professors were professors from the School of Architecture, so I got to know them. Um, my brother and I, in summers and immediately when we, our first like eight months out of college, we built houses, just the two of us, by ourselves. Um, back when it was much simpler to do that. Um, we built, I think, three places up at Sugarloaf, a place in Waterville. Um, and so by that time, we realized we didn't want to be carpenters for the rest of our life, mm -hmm. although we actually really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. He went back to engineering school, and then I went back down to Cambridge. And I took a job in an architectural firm, and then I went back to grad school. Mm. In the 40 years now of Platts Associates, have you done any other aquariums? No, no. Um, you know, those are the kind... Moving up to Maine, those are the kind of jobs that you probably will never work on again yeah. because they're, they're hiring firms that have, you know, 120 professionals in them. And, um, but that's okay. I mean, I, you know, I got to do that. It was great. It was fun. And I enjoy what we're doing here. Yeah. Maine could use a very large aquarium, I think, <laughs> someday. Yeah. The biggest problem with that will be the price tag, I can right. tell you. Oh, yes. Do you recall uh, in 1980, you started the firm, and your brother's name is Jim, right? Yes. Do you recall your first job? Oh, absolutely. Our first job we got, we were actually working out of my brother's garage, um, and we, you know, put together the proposals and built a scale model and went for the interview and, um, we got the job. Um, and we had actually a lot of competition. I think what was going in our favor was we were unemployed. And, uh, so we had hundreds and hundreds of hours to put into this proposal. Whereas if you were in an office like I'm in today, that would have cost $40,000. Nobody would have done it. But when you don't have any work, it's pretty easy to spend all your time doing one thing. So we put together a really good proposal, built a beautiful model of the prospective building, got the job, and then um, I think a couple weeks later when they told us they had the job, they said they wanted to arrange a meeting for the committee to come down and meet us in our office. And, see, and we scrambled and we went, <laughs> found some space, we rented it, we fitted it up, and just in time for them to come visit us. Where was that first office? Uh, it's right next door here. It's, uh, it's where the... Uh, Key Bank building. Is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then we were there three years when we started designing this building, and then it took another year to build this. Okay. So was this built in, what, 84 uh, or something? I think the first move-in was like December of 84. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And with that first job... You you just did the design, right? You didn't actually right. We didn't you contracted build up the, right. the build, and yeah, we just did the did the design. Um, and at that point, you you knew that's what that was the model. That's what you wanted to do. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we. Uh, I mean, that yeah, it was a big job. It was a fairly good sized job. Um, so we uh, we probably took. I bet it took nine months to design, a year and a half, over a year to build. You know, it was on the waterfront. It was a school building. It was, um, and uh, ironically, actually, the construction engineer superintendent of the project was someone I had gone to high school with. And when that project finished, he came here to work, and he's been here for the last 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. How have you, in those 40 years, how have you assembled your team? What do you look for? And, and, uh... What we really look for are professionals who are ambitious, creative, um, and, and who don't draw boundaries around themselves in terms of what they're going to do. Because we, we're architects, we do construction management, we do uh, you know, planning and programming, and you could be doing anything at any given moment in time. And so we want people who are really open to kind of stretching themselves. You know, they may be working on one job where, 
half the year they're in the office designing it, and the next half of the year they're out on the site 50% of their time making sure it gets built the way it needs to because we're actually doing the construction management. Mm -hmm. um, so I like people who have vision. Mm -hmm. And willing to adapt to different environments. Willing to adapt and willing to learn new things. Yeah. Architecture is inherently very creative work. I hope so. I mean, it should be if we're doing it right. <laughs> right. What are some other creative hobbies that you're, you're interested in? Um, I mean, I do woodworking and building at home, small things. Um, but I probably, in the last 10 years, have done a lot of photography. Mm -hmm. uh, I've tried to, as I got, have gotten older, I've tried to take a few more vacations out in life mm -hmm. and travel places and... and uh, and photograph a lot of wildlife, probably more wildlife than anything else, but uh, but also cities and icebergs in the Arctic and right. penguins in Antarctica. <laughs> How many times have you been to Antarctica? Just once. Just, just once. once? Are you going to go back? I don't know. I, there's many more other places that I'd like to go, Cause it's, so it's, I'm not quick on, it's on quite repeating the, trips. It's quite the challenge to get there, right, logistically? Uh, to get there, you have to um, go down to... Um, uh, the tip of South America, and then you have to go across Drake's Passage, which is where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And Drake's can be a challenge. Uh, on the way over, uh, it was pretty calm. I mean, actually, it was a nice trip over. And you hear really some dramatic things that happen in Drake's Passage. And so thought it was, you know, fine, no big deal, spent... 10 days over there and then came back coming back and I'm on a boat that's uh, probably 275 feet, I mean, it was a good sized boat uh, we had 45 foot waves that were breaking over this ship like it was a rowboat how uh, long does the passage take? Uh, took about I think he did it in 36 hours not in land to land but Rough sea to rough sea, to, you know, calm sea to calm sea. Yeah. Wow. It took, it took about 36 hours to get out of that. Wow. Most people didn't leave their rooms. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just too hard to walk. I mean, I, I did. And a lot of people got sick. Yeah. What time of year were you in Antarctica? Uh, you have to go pretty much in our winter, their summer. Mm. <clears throat> it would be, too, I think they stop most trips there. You know, when it comes to uh, our summer, their winter. Mm -hmm. And you went for as a uh, photography expedition type of thing. Yeah, yeah. What did you take pictures of there? Oh boy, I mean, you take pictures of unlimited icebergs and ice, but lots of white things. Yeah, lots <laughs> of white things. Uh, penguins, uh, all kinds of birds, and um, not. I'm trying to think. In Antarctica. Not sure we saw any mammals. You know, you see fish, whales. You see um, uh, tons of uh, penguins. You know, three, four different varieties. But the only mammals are people that we saw. Mm -hmm. Unlike the Arctic, where you actually see polar bears and um, Arctic fox and yeah, reindeer, and you know, you see lots of things that you don't see in the south. Mm -hmm. This is going to be quite the departure but from Antarctica, but to, you're heavily involved with the public theater in Lewiston. I am. How did you first get involved with that, and what is what is your role today? Uh, that was interesting. Um, back in, let's see if I get the year right, but I think it was 1990, um, there were maybe three or four friends who got together with a director from Bangor who was leaving Penobscot Theater and decided we wanted to open a theater here. And um, it was a challenge. I mean, a lot of people said, you know, nobody's going to come to a theater in Lewiston, Maine. Um, but we did it anyway. So we, we um, the first year, the we I think we rented the movie house that was at the Auburn Mall. There were two cinemas in the Auburn Mall. Hmm. And they had closed. So we rented one of them for our first season, and I, we did. We were going to only do one show and see how it went. And we did the show, and I think it sold out. So we decided to do one more show. We did that. And then we realized, uh, I can't remember whether the 
Auburn. They, I think they wanted to turn the theater into a store, which it eventually was. And we, so we went over and we rented the old Ritz Theater in Lewiston, which when I grew up, um, when I was real young, it showed first-run films. And by the time I think I left town, it was showing mostly X-rated stuff. Mm. Um, but And it was vacant. When we, so we rented it uh, from um, a snowshoe club that owned the building and had their uh, meeting space upstairs. We took the seats. I'm trying to think of where we got. I think the seats we got from the Auburn Mall. I think we bought those seats, or they may have given them to us. But they had no upholstery on them. So we took all the bare seats that the upholstery mostly had been ripped off and I found a woman and I, I'm sorry I can't remember her name an older woman um, I say that today but she probably she seemed old back then <laughs> and she had been a stitcher at the mills and she showed me how to reupholster seats so myself and four other people reupholstered every one of those seats in the theater over 300 yeah 330 seats we upholstered wow um, I still have some extras in my basement. <laughs> um, but then, so we started that season. Uh, this director stayed with us through that season, and then he moved on, and we interviewed and hired Christopher Sherio, who's there now. Yeah. Uh, and we've had 25 successful seasons. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great. I'm, I'm the treasurer of the board. Um, I keep waiting for my tenure to run up, but um, <laughs> they keep reelecting me to the board. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, and I've been on the board for, I think, uh, five years now. Yeah, and it's great yeah. to have younger people on the board. <laughs> you only have 20 more to go. That's right. No, it's been, it's been, it's been fun to, to be a part of it and, and help yeah, and steer I've, it a little bit in, in, a, in a future it, yeah. It's a great place, and I think once we get through this, this yeah. COVID, we'll be back and running again. Yeah, hopefully soon. Yeah. In regard to Lewis and Auburn, more of a more on a macro level, you know, the, it's it's a unique place in Maine because it's two separate cities, yeah. but often referred to as one community. Can you expand on that and talk a little bit how that affects? Some of its challenges, sure, and some of its, some of the positivity that comes from that too. Sure, I mean I think, as you say, there there is definitely um, positive aspects to that, and there are aspects to it that hold us back. I mean they're both great cities. Um, unfortunately, the way they developed over the years, when all the and, and I take that back. Not all the mills were in Lewiston, but the majority of the mills were in Lewiston. There were there was Lown and Lunn and Clark Shoe in Auburn. I think they were all shoe companies in Auburn. Um, but by and large, Auburn was more of a residential community, and Lewiston was the business community, uh, which worked fine, I think, in the early years. Um, it's worked to the detriment a little bit of Auburn as they try to develop economically to be more of a bedroom community. And I think they're, they're moving out of that. But it's difficult not to have a real dense downtown um, because residents don't really pay the taxes that businesses pay to kind of keep the town thriving. Um, Lewiston, on the other hand, is has the dense city, which is great. They're thriving. Um, but then they have the issues of dealing with a dense city, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's policing issues or fire issues or just um, monetary issues of, of running a big city. Um, so I think while they both function, you know, very well, uh, I was a proponent of joining them. Uh, and it's interesting because I think some of the people who were against joining them were more, you know, I, I was born here, I grew up here, and Auburn's my city or Lewiston's mm-hmm. my city. And I'm one of those people, but I think I felt like we have so much strength together. And and we use that together. I don't want anybody to think I don't think that we do. I mean, I think we join forces all the time. 
Um, but there would have been some unique ways we could join forces if we were one economic group, um, especially in our schools, uh, the way we could uh, specialize schools. And kids could go to, you know, a school of math and science here or a school of humanities here. I mean, we could do some really innovative stuff. And I don't think it would take away from our identities. I mean, you'd still have Edward Little High School in the Red Eddies. You'd still have Lewiston High School and the, uh, the Blue Devils. I mean, that, that stuff would not have to go away. Um, so while I think we'll, st- we'll do fine as two cities, I think it might take a little longer for each city to get where they want to go. I've always thought economically these cities, and I've been here a long time, um, we, we're unique in the state in that we... We don't usually suffer the real deep lows, but we also don't kind of joy in the real highs. You know, we've got this kind of slow, slugging uh, attitude of moving forward, two steps forward, one step back. So we keep moving forward, but at a slow pace. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, maybe something innovative could have propelled us forward a little faster, but we'll get there. I think I talked to you at one point over the years about you can correct me if I'm wrong but wasn't there a proposal for the city of Auburn to have the turnpike exit in New Auburn yeah it's funny for years and years and would have that if that had come to pass would it how would that affect this community? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I can tell you how it would have affected it. I mean, I think it would have been positive. Um, you know, Auburn decided early on. I think when the and this I, I get only from what people have told me. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. that they wanted that they didn't want the turnpike to go right through the city, mm-hmm. and they chose instead to have kind of the Washington Avenue um, entry to the city. Uh, which in itself is not bad, I think. I mean, it, I think it could have worked out better than it did. But then for the last 20 years, people have said, you know, we need, an, we need more exits. We need, you know, an exit downtown, and it, it'll stimulate growth. And then I think finally the main Turkpike Authority said, okay, fine. We'll find you one. Here's where it's got to go. It's, you know, they did all the engineering. And then, because anybody near it said, well, we don't want the agent near us. Right. So it died. Uh-huh. And, and I, my guess is the Turnpike Authority is going to say, look, <laughs> you know, we tried. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's essential. I think Washington Avenue could be improved. Mm-hmm. I think if Washington Avenue were more... Uh, more like a, f- uh, what do I want to say? More like a turnpike spur than the road it is where so many, where you can get on it in so many places. Um, it might feel more like you're just getting off at this exit, getting onto this kind of semi-turnpike and getting downtown. Right. Um, right. You know, if you could do more like back roads, but you like you could get on and off it in multiple places, but you'd have to go behind the buildings to get to the next five buildings or something to keep the traffic really just moving along there at a good pace. Uh, I mean, it's already a divided highway, so it wouldn't be that difficult. Right. Um, I think you and put things on it that really make people want to stop and shop or do do things. You could probably turn it to your advantage. Hmm. Sounds like a fun project for you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of them. Where do you see, where or what do you hope to see Lewis and Auburn in next 10, 20, 25 years? Uh, love to see a lot more young people moving in, young professional people. Um, and, and young people of, of uh, all walks of life. Um, I think we're starting to build uh, living units downtown, which will start to draw people in. I think the more people we draw in, the more amenities we can offer. I mean, it's very difficult to kind of build a nice restaurant and then hope everybody comes when there's nobody here to come 
or build a bar or any of these things. So they kind of have to work in unison. People have to come and take a chance on us, enjoy what we do have, and then we'll build more for them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, again, that is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, there's some nice apartments going up. Um, they're filling up pretty fast. Uh, we've got more restaurants and, and bars and pubs than we've had in a long time. Um, a little hard to tell right now with, uh, with the environment we're in, but I think things really were starting to gel before this whole virus started, and I think, you know, I think we'll pick right up as soon as it, as it goes. But I would like to see in 10 years, um, you know, a corridor for Bates students to flow right downtown. Um, more students downtown, University of Maine downtown which will create more housing needs and more um, restaurants and coffee shops and delis and things like that. Uh, I think we have a lot of potential. I think the time's right right now. I think Portland is very expensive to live in. If you just graduated from college and you find you need to spend, you know, $3,000 a month on an apartment um, and you don't really want to live with three other guys... <laughs> um, it's it's a problem, mm. and you can come up here and get some really nice living, uh, and and it's ironic because even if you were to work in Portland or Westbrook, you're 25 minutes away, and and sometimes people view that as far, but if you lived in Brooklyn and had to get to Manhattan every morning, you better give yourself more than 25 minutes. That's right. Oh yeah. Uh, and you're only two miles away. So, and you're going to be trapped on a metal tube. Oh, you're going to, yeah. I mean, it's a disastrous life if if you ask me. Yeah. But uh, so I think we have a lot to give. I know young Portland people have moved up here, who went from living in you know a 900 square foot apartment to having like 10 acres in their backyard um, for less money. Yeah. And and so I think we're really ripe. I think. I think it's unfortunate that we had this interruption right now because we were really, I think, moving fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm confident it'll pick up. Is there a way, once we get through this pandemic, is there a way to sort of jumpstart that again? Well, I think we can because during the pandemic, one thing I've noticed is we haven't really, in my office here, we really haven't slowed up at all. We're still designing, I think, and this isn't all in Lewiston, Auburn, but in the state of Maine right now, and nothing in Portland, so more rural Maine. We have in the office under design 75, probably 300 units of housing. Wow. Um, which speaks to the shortage. The fact that it's not in Portland speaks to the fact people need it outside of the urban area. Um, and of those, at least. Uh, 160 of them are in Lewiston, Auburn. Awesome. Yeah. And going back, you said, you know, wouldn't it be great to have, like, the University of Maine downtown? Yeah. When you say downtown, do you mean Lewiston downtown or Auburn downtown? Um, or either? It could be It could be either. I think somewhere right close to this bridge so that it's, you know, central, yeah. uh, within walking distance to people who are living downtown. I mean, that's one thing. If you're going to provide a lot of downtown housing, which you hope some students will partake of, uh, then you want the school to be nearby. What do you think are some natural assets that this community has that have been underutilized? Well, the riverfront, certainly. I mean, we we could definitely open up the riverfront. Um, we have the canal system, mm-hmm. which... Which has had some proposals over the we, years. We've had some proposals, and, and slowly, since we first started working on the Bates Mill, um, we've worked with the city. We finally, and I think it took 10 years, to get the ownership of the canals into the city's hands rather than the power company's hands, you know, with a contract that requires water be flowing down them. Uh, you know, someday I would like to see the fences come down. I'd like to see the water level get a little bit higher so that it's not steep down into the water. I'd like to see us build little land peninsulas that kind of went out overlooking the canal where you could have a picnic, where you could, you know, drop a remote control boat in the water and play around. Mm-hmm. Um, we could really make those canals something to be to use, be, be used by people all the time. Um, we have 
Lost Valley ski area. I mean, it's a small ski area, but if you're bringing up kids in this town and you want them to ski four or five days a week like we did when we grew up, you couldn't get anything better. That's true. I mean, it's well run. It's a short run. I mean, it's not, you're not going to, you know, have black diamond trails for, for people, but that's where we all learned to ski. And we used to ski, um, well, when I grew up here, the ski teams from the high school and junior highs were incredible. Skiing was just a major thing. And you were out there five days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where I learned how to ski. Yeah, yeah. It's a great place for that. It's an incredible place to learn. It's obviously and a different style of skiing because it is such a well, so sure, smaller. But sure, I mean, you graduate. Yeah, you graduate on to bigger things, but it's also the kind of place that you can take your twelve-year-old and drop them off there and pick them up at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a you know relatively safe environment. Um, they're doing something that's positive with their friends, mm-hmm. uh, spending time outdoor in the winters. And as going back to the river, what what specifically could you see developing on that? Well, it, just, it runs pretty far to what would be the Durham line, correct? Yeah, you'd go down to probably the Durham boat launch. Actually, you can go down further than that, I think. Um, but that's a place where you can get out. Right. Uh, and I know people have done that. You've got to be a little careful on the rips down here. Mm-hmm. But um, Or you could put in after those, too. I mean, there's plenty of places to put in. I think it's just a, it's a great asset to be canoeing or um, uh, you, you rowing. You could do, you could, we, I, I think at the right time of year, you could have some rowing regattas. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could do things that other people don't do. Right. Um, you got to be imaginative to draw people in. Uh, I think um, the art that we're working on in, in Lewiston and Auburn right now, could be a tremendous draw to this city. Yeah. Um, we're, we're getting positive feedback from it. Uh, there's uh, we unveiled a, a sculpture mm-hmm. by Andy Rosen in the mills a couple weeks ago. He's going to be doing another one in the canals in the spring. Um, there is uh, this one going into uh, not by him but by another artist. Uh, into Bonnie Park in the spring for Auburn. Um, I think there are a couple murals that are going to be going up. Uh, we're looking at another sculpture. We'd like to create a real art trail of sculptures and murals and industrial art from Museum LA so that we're a destination. People come here to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've been a, a huge supporter of the arts over the years and um you know, looking out your window here, you can actually see one recently that's been up, put up on... Oh, Charlie Hewitt's hopeful sign. Yeah. And that well, was great. What was the motivation behind that piece? And, uh, and to put it on Batesville Mill well, 5. Well, I think Charlie is originally from Lewiston. And uh, as you may or may not know, he gave us the rattle. That's, um, that's one of his sculptures that's at the Bates Mill right now on one of the old silos. It's the same type of artwork that he put in the High Line in New York City. And he has one on Congress Street in Portland. And he felt, he kind of feels like Lewiston always gets neglected, and it's his hometown, so he wanted to give something back. So he gave that back. And then he and I were talking one day after he did the hopeful sign down in Portland, um, and he said, you know, we need to do one up here, and it's got to be bigger. It's got to be the biggest one. And I said, sure, Charlie, Let's. what do you want to do? So he designed it. It's a 30-foot-long hopeful sign. He wanted it where everybody would see it all day long and all night long. You can't get a better place than Batesville Number 5. I mean, that's. I, I don't know the current numbers, but I think that Main Street over to Court Street is one of the busiest routes in the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, tens of thousands of cars a day. And we get all kinds Maybe of comments. Maybe more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people love And it's it. lit. And, yeah. And is it lit 24 hours? 24 hours a day. Yeah. It's all LEDs. Yeah. Very little draw of electricity. Yeah. Um, and it's just great. It's great to have it there. What do you think, um, what do you, what's going on with Bates Mill 5 generally? And, um, and what would you like to see happen with that? Uh, we have one tenant who definitely wants to go in. Uh, we have two other tenants who are kind of weighing their options of where they want to go. They think they strongly like mill number five. 
I would love to tra attract uh, the University of Maine to come in there. Um, and I think they're interested, but I think they're looking at a number of places. I think they'd like to be downtown. They did. They want to be downtown, but they have to look around. So we'll do what we can to try to court them. I think those would all be really great uses uh, and would let us start to develop it. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at there is there is so much you you can't it's just so much brick over there. There is, and you know you, you go into different mills and it's impressive how expansive these places are but they're also empty how can we continue to to encourage development and fill them up with professionals or uh, students yeah. creatives you know a, a mill space would be a perfect art studio yeah well i think it's happening i mean if you know we started out with the bates mill and excluding mill number five, we had about, I think about 900,000 square feet to rent. Uh, we've developed 700,000 of that already. Hmm. Um, and, and it's not all kind of in the past. I mean, Northeast Bank just moved into 20,000 square feet of mill two four weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we are attracting people. I mean, they love the space. Uh, the people working there love it as well as the employers. It's very, as you say, you've been in a very unique space. I mean, it's got all all wood timbers. It's um, 14, sometimes 16-foot ceilings, depending on what building you're in. Things that you would never do in a new building today. You just can't afford it. I mean, you know, you might get 9-foot ceilings in a building today, but 14, 16 foot ceilings, you just can't do it. You could do it in the lobby, but you can't do it everywhere. So it's just phenomenal space. I mean, the windows in some of these uh, rooms are 12 feet high. You go yeah, to Mill, mill yeah. 6, the windows are 14 and a half feet high. Mm -hmm. um, you just don't do those things today. So they're great spaces. I mean, people love them. They make great places for gatherings, restaurants, pubs. Um, you know, we've got, well, three restaurants in the mills right now, and people seem to love going there. Um, so I think it is happening. It's, uh, it's a lot of space to fill quickly, um, but I don't see it slowing down. I think uh, we're still very, uh, there's a couple things we have when we're and we and I don't want to compete with Portland, but by the same token, these businesses do look at Portland. Um, and one thing we have going for us is we have parking. The city has been incredible in making sure that there's enough parking for people to move up here. Um, we also have rents that are 35 percent less than Portland. Um, so if you're a big company that doesn't really need to be downtown, you don't have people walking off the street to see you, and your employees um, value being five minutes from hundreds of acres of hiking trails rather than being, you know, downtown Portland and working their way out to somewhere that feels outdoors, this is a perfect place for you. Mm -hmm. You know, if they like to ski, you're... You're a half hour closer to Sugarloaf, um, which can make a big difference on a Friday night. So I think we've got lots to sell. Recently, um, a business that came in, into the mill space was Grand Rounds. How did that happen, and, and what was the process like? To they were competing with other cities. Yes, and why they, did they choose Lusinabra? So they're a company that started out in San Francisco, and um, grew very quickly. It's a it's a healthcare referral system, and uh, I mean they were just doing really well. I mean they're handling big companies, uh, managing their their healthcare, and what they quickly found was as they grew, and their companies that they were managing were on the East Coast, or even in on the central time, um, it was tough for them to manage because now they need multiple shifts working through the night to deal with the time zone changes. So they decided they needed an East Coast presence. One of their vice presidents was actually from Maine, and actually the owner of the company is from Manchester, New Hampshire. So they had some kind of northeast roots. So she uh, encouraged him to come here, meet with me, and take a look at the mills, and he just loved them. 
Um, but he said, we have to go through a process. He's, and then uh, I think a couple weeks later, he told me that they were looking at Baltimore, Boston, in Maine. They were looking in Biddeford, and they were looking in Lewiston. And he said, uh, we need to start out. We're going to have 140 people. We expect to be at about 240 in three years and maybe 500 in six years. So he said the number of things are important. He said obviously housing for them is important, um, but they don't need to live right downtown. I mean, they'll all probably be pretty mobile. He said one of the most important things will be parking. And uh, in the end, uh, he said, you know, Boston, he said, there's no parking in Boston. He said, there just isn't any. And he said, it's not the money. There just isn't any. And he said, Baltimore is similar. He said, it's just, it's crowded. There's no parking. At the time, Bitterford said they had plenty of parking. And he said, when he went down and looked at it, actually, it was all on street parking. I mean, they do have lots of parking, but it's, it's not guaranteed. I mean, you park on the street when you find a space. And they had plenty of on-street parking. We guaranteed him all his parking in a parking garage. And he said, and actually I was very apologetic. I said, you know, it is going to cost you like 52 bucks a month. And he said, he kind of looked at me and smiled. He said, well, he said, our headquarters are in San Francisco. He said, we're paying about 475 a month right now. He said, so we can handle 52 a month. (laughs) And he kind of laughed. I mean, that's what he loves about Maine. I mean, it's just, you know, you get value for what you're getting. Mm-hmm. And so that really attracted him here. I mean, the mill and the parking, um, you know, he could have, uh, well, we just finished out new space for him last year, 50,000 square feet all on one floor. Uh, and he has an option on the 50,000 square feet above him for next year. So um, it was great. And they're, they have great employees. Their employees are probably all somewhere between 25 and 40. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't all live in Lewiston, Auburn. I mean, you know, they live in Sabattis and Turner and Green and, you know, within 20 minutes of here. Uh, and a lot of them live in town, too. But uh, And that's the way it should be. I mean, they get to, they, they love the fact that they live in the country, but they are in a business that deals with people all over the United States. Yep. Yeah, you can't underestimate the power of trees. Right, yeah. exactly. That's a... And that we have. <laughs> and... W- he was saying, uh, open, projecting to have 500 employees in six years? That's what they were originally that, projecting. I don't know where they're at right now. I think here, right in, here in Maine or just in Maine, in across Maine. the country? In, in Maine. Okay. I think they're at, I think they're at like 240 right now. Mm-hmm. So they have been growing. I, I don't know if they're on track for, uh, that they were originally, but they definitely have been growing. But if they do get to that point, they're all going to be housed here in Lewiston, correct? Right. That was the idea. Yeah, yeah. in terms of their main, this, yeah, they're not going to do another office somewhere right. else in Maine. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I say that. I certainly hope they're not. <laughs> and so one of, the, one of the factors in choosing that space, the mill space, was the option to grow right. into it yeah. further. Yeah, we've, we've kind of guaranteed them the, the yeah. ability to expand. Right. That's yeah. great. Um. Switching gears back to you. <laughs> Are you a reader? Yes. Um, sometimes I'm, um, I, I wouldn't say to a detriment, but I'm occasionally accused of, when I'm in a room with lots of people, of just reading my book and not talking to anybody. Um, I probably, uh, I now read everything on a Kindle. I never used to do that. Mm-hmm. But when I started traveling, I, I realized I can't walk, carry all these books. And so I think I'm on my 800th book on my Kindle. Wow. So I probably wow. read at least a couple of books a week. And and the, those Kindles, too, have... Uh gotten really really nice like yeah. Oh, yeah the newest ones have the it, it looks like real paper right well it looks like real paper and they're really tiny now i uh, mean they're yeah. just so um yeah, your listeners right won't be able to yeah i know <laughs> but uh but they're so thin and, and they're so light and, and light yeah. and having an entire just, library in this thing yeah it's amazing yeah. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I, I love them and uh i read all the time i mean I, you know i read till one in the morning uh 
You've got a asleep. you've got a low, very low pa- uh, battery warning on here, but I'm assuming <laughs> you haven't charged it in weeks, right? Yeah, because <laughs> the things last for, forever. Yeah, yeah, they go for a few weeks. Uh, what do you? So, what do you? What's in your library? Is it very? Is it an eclectic I, mix? Yeah, I, I I have no specific thing that I read. You know, I read a lot of just uh, some of them are just mysteries and stuff. I read uh, autobiographies. I'll read um, environmental stuff or. Just whatever catches my fancy, or somebody recommends. Yeah. What? Any titles that have really stuck? That you keep coming back to rereading. Well, I would say my one of my favorite books of all time is *Devil in the White City*. Um, you I haven't heard of you it. You haven't heard of it, so you have to. I'm read, writing it down though. You have to read it. It's one of my favorite books, and everybody I've given it to has loved it. Um, it's written by Eric Larson, and it's 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 written. It's I would say um, you know it's part fiction and part factual. It's it's about it's written in the eighteen ninety three World's Fair in Chicago, um, called the White City because the theme of it was. All the buildings and architecture were white. In the 1890s, and then there's also kind of a, like a murder story that goes on on the side. I mean, it's a he blended two things. But what's fascinating is just reading about the 1893 World's Fair. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was such an important World's Fair in terms of America. Um, it was the World's Fair that's responsible for us having alternating current in the United States. Um, oh, wow. They were getting ready to wire it for electricity. Remember, 1893 is when they were just starting to get electricity in the United States. And the places that had it were using DC current, which is not a very convenient way to operate electricity. So the World's Fair Committee asked for proposals on how the World's Fair was going to be wired, alternating current one out, and that took over the United States. Um, They also... Uh, I believe it was the, and I won't say it's when they first started, but they were looking, they were building some multi-story buildings, and they were looking for ways of making them accessible to people. And uh, a guy named, uh, I guess, Otis, uh, came up with what's called shoeless brakes for an elevator, so that if it fell, it would stop immediately. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the birth of the safe elevators. Oh, wow. Um, For the landmark... Uh, every World's Fair had a landmark. Paris's was the Eiffel Tower. And so they were looking for something really just novel and something that would knock people's socks off. And they found this young, I'd say 25-year-old engineer. I, I might have the age wrong, but he was a young engineer. And his last name was Ferris. And that's where he built the largest mm. Ferris wheel. Got it. In the United nice. States at the World's Fair. And it goes on and on. There's just a bunch of stuff that happened. Incredible architects that worked uh, on the buildings. Um, uh, it was interesting. Uh, Louis Sullivan worked on the World's Fair Committee. And he had, I've got to make sure I get this story right, but I think he had a young architect that worked for him that he put in charge of his office while he worked on the World's Fair. And uh, turned out the young architect quit and went and opened up his own studio, Frank Lloyd Wright. Hmm. Um, but just lots of, the book is just full of rich stories like that. Uh, just a really good book. Yeah, I can uh, see, as you describe it, you're your love for architecture, I think that well, yeah, goes they, into yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, Burnham did all the landscape architecture there. Yeah. I mean, it just every it was a whole building of a city, right? Um, and, and the murder story was kind of just this thing. I don't know, it was creeping up in the background, and yeah. I I'm sure he did it for character building and just so he wouldn't just be telling story right. after story. But it was, uh, yeah, you got to read. It. I think I have it here. I'll give it to you. Oh, cool. You can take it with you. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so I, I enjoy reading. Did you, did you, or do you have a mentor? And did you have a mentor growing up? Growing up, or or I mean, even professionally in business? Yeah, I mean, I think professionally, um, 
You know, I wouldn't say one specific one. I mean, I really, I would say I was definitely influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture uh, and certainly was when I was in grad school. Hmm. Uh, worked with some really great architects when I was, before I went back to grad school. Um, and I think they all in different ways influenced me. Um, I don't think, you know, I've had a mentor in the last 30 years. I mean, I've kind of been on my own up here. Um, so I wouldn't say I did. Um, you know, as a young kid, I think, you know, probably most people's mentors are their fathers. I mean, just they kind of shape what you're going to, how, how you think and what you might be in life. But then I, he, he died when I was in grad school, so he had not, no part of my professional life, really. Um, I mean, I think certainly he had an influence on how I view living in a community. You know, you give back as much as you can. You know, you don't just take from communities. You need to be part of, of, of a solution of making them better places to live. I think that's certainly a philosophy I grew up with. Do you think that philosophy is your purpose? I would say it's a major part of my purpose. Sure, sure. And I think it's it's something I try to... Um, I don't want to use the word teach because I don't think that's true, but it's something I try to pass on to people around me. I mean, I think it's uh, too bad to see people kind of step in and out all the time and not really be part of it. You know, uh, I think it's important to kind of, not that you have to um, plant roots in a community if it's not the place for you, but I think while you are there, you, it's important to be involved. I think if you're, inv I think when people are involved in the community and they're involved with other people who are involved in the community, it's easier to see people as people. And I think there's less of a lot of this kind of hatred that's going around. And, um, you know, when you look in somebody in the eye and you hear their story, it's tough to really challenge them on it. Um, mm -hmm. It's easier to maybe understand their point of view. Yeah. As someone that's given back and given to so many organizations, individuals within the community over the years, what do you what do you get in return from that? Um, Why do you do it? You know, I think it makes me feel satisfied, good that I have some effect on what's going on around me, some positive effects. I'm sure I have negative effects on people too, but you try, you know, you try your best to be positive. My thanks to Tom for sharing his time, wisdom, and insight with us. It was awesome to hear the perspective of someone who's given so much to the community he truly cares about. As Tom is my last guest of this first season, be sure to stay tuned for a special edition season finale. Positive vibes and well wishes from all of us at LA Metro Magazine. Until next time, I'm your host, Colby Michaud. Make sure you're being entertained, staying informed, and getting inspired. 